Wow. Wow. That was so kind of you. Thank you. I, well, I'm done. <laughs> My name is Joe, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And tonight, I'm happy, whole, and useful, and I hope this evening finds you the same. I, uh, I'm really grateful to be here because the landscape of the people that I see tonight I usually don't see it things like this. I usually speak at places that people don't know. I don't know me unless I've seen them before, you know, traveling around the country. And But there's so many people here that have been part of the texture of my path, that they've done something for me, or inadvertently I've done something for them. You know, I, I didn't know I did that for him. And uh, it's it just changes the texture of my talk. And um, I hope this goes the way I want it to go tonight. I really do. Um, I don't have any problem speaking, uh, and I know what I want to say, but whether it comes out that way, I don't know. I, I really don't. Um, let me get this out here so I remember. You know, I've been coming around AA for a long time now, and um, I am not here to help you. No, you can relax. <laughs> Most of the people that I share my story with, they don't stay sober. So you've got time to get out while they're getting good. But uh, the reason I say that is, is you know, A started uh, with Bill's desperate attempt to try to stay sober himself. And uh, he happened to be in Akron in um, he looked up some people in the phone book and ran across the woman named Henrietta Cyberling, and she hooked him up with Dr. Bob. And uh, Dr. Bob told his wife, Ann, before the meeting, look, I'm going to give this guy about 15 minutes. I don't know what the heck he's going to do to help me. I've done everything. Oxford group, medication, religion, detox, physical fitness. I have no clue how this guy's going to help me. So I tell you what, give him 15 minutes, tell him I've got an emergency phone call, and I'm going to get out of there. So Bill goes in to talk to him, and Bob had just come off a drunk. He's shaking, looks bad. Bill says, you look like you can need a drink. And, and it kind of shocked him. It kind of let Bob know that Bill knew something about the drink game. And Bob pretty much told Bill, I don't know what you're going to do for me, pal. I've talked to everybody. I've tried everything I know how. And Bill says, well, I'm not here to help you. He says, matter of fact, Doc, I need your help. You need my help? Yeah. Uh, I, I found that by sharing my story with ex-problem drinkers, I've been able to stay sober myself for, what, four or five months now. And uh, so if you would be so kind as to give me a little bit of your time, it would help me immensely. He says, you're not here to help me? He says, no, I'm here to help myself. He says, tell me more. <laughs> and that's how it all started. So I'm saying to you, I've been sober since 1978, October 5th of 78, and I have found that by sharing my story with other ex-problem drinkers, I've been able to stay sober now over 38 years. And if you would be so kind as to give me about an hour of your time, it would help me tremendously. And the great thing is, you don't have to like anything I say. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to even listen, really. You know, but it would help me if you listen. So... Uh, being around A as long as I have, the landscape has changed. When I was in my early 20s, I was 23 when I got sober, and you could walk around the tables of AA, and you, 
eavesdrop on some conversations of other people in their 20s, and you'd hear about college and raising a family and buying a home and starting a business. And some of those people are still here years later. But the conversations change. I walk around those tables and I hear people talk about hot flashes, Viagra, and Social Security. <laughs> and uh, I thought I'm grateful I was around to hear that. And uh, you know, the other thing I really am grateful for is to be able to travel around the country and participate in AA. You know, Bob knows this, but hell, he uh, travels a lot more than I do. But I've been able to participate in AA all over the country, and I've seen so many different ways that alcoholics stay sober. And uh, a lot of different factions in AA. You've got the Harley guys, the dry riders, and they ride Harleys and don't drink and go to meetings, and they go home sober. And you've got the people who are in the general service. And, man, if you're not in general service, man, you don't, you're not sober, man. <laughs> and they go home sober. And then you've got the intergroup people. And then you've got the people who are going on camp outs. Oh, we camp out and we, we work with drunks and go to meetings. We go, and they go home sober, oh, many of them. Uh, and then you have people that do back to the 40s because the percentage was better or something like that. I don't know, but they go home sober. And then you have people that do the work. Ooh, does it hurt? <laughs> oh, and they go home sober. And then you've got people like me who fell into a group of people who said, we read the book, do what it says to do, and we go to hospitals, jails, and institutions, and we went home sober. And you go, what's the common denominator with all these people? And the common denominator is they relied on a power greater than themselves and continue to carry the message of what my drinking was like, what happened to me, and what my life is like now. And they're relying on a power greater than themselves. And all of them go home think their way is the right way. And I, my hat's off to you. I respect you. I've scratched my head at some stuff I've heard. But you're going home sober, and I can't deny that. You know. So all I had to share is my experience, strength, and hope, and what my experience has been. Uh, I, I Because I know so many people here, they, I, there's quite a few people that said, talk about, are you going to talk about the spiritual awakening? You can talk, tell the story about the spiritual awakening. I went, ah, oh, I wanted to tell something different. I wanted to talk about spiritual purpose. Um, but this is the last time for the spiritual awakening talk. <laughs> that train has left the station. You know, as I've changed in AA, what I talk about changes. As I've changed in AA, what's important to me changes. So I don't like going back and reliving stuff over because it, I don't like doing it. But uh, anyway, we're getting wiped out, man. There's a big, uh, a big wave of heroin epidemic in this country. It's just, it's huge. It's huge, huge. And if I were to come into A today, there's a good chance I'd probably be an alcoholic and a heroin addict. You know, you know how we are. You know, in between drunks, I don't have anything to drink. This guy says, I've got some stuff you can smoke off this foil. It's really good. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all it takes. This stuff is so pure and it's so cheap. Uh, same way with crack. You know, in between drunks, try this. It'll make you feel great for about 10 minutes. <laughs> okay. And, you know, meth addicts, oh, you're in between drunks. Try this. Keep you going for 24 hours. And I would have done it. Just 
being naive and, and ignorant to what was going on, I, I would have done it. Because drunks will do a lot of different things. And they don't know why they're doing it. But I know this. It's like the 70s. When we came in in the 70s, they were really afraid in Alcoholics Anonymous that these drug addicts were going to destroy AA. And the same way today is the courts, they don't know what to do with people, so they go, send them all to AA. They don't know what to do with them. They're overwhelmed. And they mean well. Um, but I'm going to talk about alcohol and drugs tonight because of, it's what my story is about. But I'm going to say it in a way that you've never heard before. <laughs> Believe that or not. <laughs> you know, I, I had a grandfather. I found out that drinking a lot of alcohol does not make somebody an alcoholic. Doing a lot of heroin will make you a heroin addict. Home run. You do it five, ten times. 100%. Well, 99. I'll give you 1%. You're going to be a heroin addict. Same way with crack. Same way with meth. You do it over a consistent period of time on a regular basis. You will be addicted. It is just such, it's so addictive. It's crazy. But according to the National Institute of Health, of all the people in the United States that drink alcohol their whole lives, only 7 to 8% become alcoholic. You go, well, why is that? Why? Why? Isn't that addictive? Isn't that alcoholism? Isn't it all the same? And I'm saying, no, it's not. It really is not all the same. And I came into A and it looked all the same to me because I was just, oh, it's all the same. It's all the same. And uh, my grandfather drank Echo Springs whiskey every day, almost, for 42 years. The doctors told him at the age of 82, you are going to... You're going to lose your legs. We're going to have to cut your legs off if you don't stop drinking. It's messing with the circulation in your legs so bad. Quit just like that. Never took another drink. Didn't go to detox. Didn't go to intensive outpatient. Didn't go to a hospital. Nothing. Nothing. And I'm sober a year and a half, and I watched this guy. This guy used to come down our house drunk. He, he's, he lost his license from drinking. Knew he wasn't going to stop drinking. So he rode the bus and got cabs everywhere he went. And he would come down drunk on Sunday morning at our house. And we lived at a on a dead-end street, four houses from the end. Everybody knew everybody. And Grandpa would come down with his drunken yellow cab buddy, and they'd both be drunk, both be wiped out. <laughs> 11 o'clock, Sunday morning, everybody's coming home from church. And he'd pop the trunk on the, on the cab, and he got a possum out on a leash. He's walking a possum on a leash. <laughs> He's drunk in the neighborhood. And my dad is looking out the window going, oh, my mother's name is Jubal. Jubal, God, get your father. He's out there walking a possum. What will the neighbors think? Now, you would think a guy like that would be an alcoholic, wouldn't you? He lost his license and all that. And walk, walking possums drunk and just crazy. But on the advice of a doctor, he stopped. And I asked him, what do you do now that you don't drink? He says, well, I like seeing my children and my grandchildren. I like planting out in the garden. I like going for walks. And it occurred to me I was not like him. He was happy with his life. And there was another influential man in my life after I got sober. And he had problems drinking, but he was not alcoholic either. His name was Frank Christoffel. He's dead. Frank was a nice guy. I'm sober maybe three weeks, and this fellow was kind enough to give me a job in AA to get me off the streets. And he put me with Frank. He says, you don't mind working with Frank, do you? I go, why? He goes, Frank got drunk, 
in a blackout, killed his girlfriend at a party, did 10 years for murder. Does that bother you? I said, has he killed anybody lately? <laughs> he says, no. And he's, uh, he said this. He said, Frank doesn't have a problem with alcohol. I said, what? He said, yeah. Frank doesn't have a problem with alcohol. Frank drank successfully up to the day he died. Never came in drunk. Never had a DUI. Never drank so much that he had problems with the law ever again. And I thought, how do you drink so much you black out and kill your girlfriend at a party and do 10 years for murder and not be alcoholic? He could control and enjoy his drinking. He could do the right about face and drink like a gentleman. And the other two things that had in common is the main thing. With me, when I drank, it put my spirit to sleep. It didn't do that with Frank, and it didn't do that with Grandpa. When they got sober, they were fine. When I got sober, the world looked bad. It looked like, it's not going to work out. Anything I do, Dave, it's not going to work out. Not at all. And uh, can you imagine me coming to AA for the first time in 1977, and somebody comes up to me with the solution before they talk to me about their drinking? You know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to, in other words, you mean my spirit was asleep at one time? Yeah, I, well, I woke up. Can you imagine somebody slinking up on me at my first meeting going, I know what your problem is. I don't even know you. What do you mean you know what my problem is? Yeah. Are you an alcoholic? I go, well, I don't know, maybe. He said, well, if you are, your problem is your spirit is asleep. What? He said, yeah. That's why when you think of the past, you grit your teeth with a whole list full of grudges about people who wronged you. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, you loathe the person that you are and you hate yourself. And when you think of the future, it scares the hell out of you. But we found a way to change all that. It's called the 12 Steps to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's really wild. If you take these, these 12 steps, your spirit will wake up and everything will change. You want to try it? I want to have... What is this, Scientology or the Moonies or what the hell's going on here? It never would have made any sense to me at all, but think about it. Wouldn't even tell me the truth. Yeah, wouldn't even tell me the truth. And that didn't happen to Frank, and that didn't happen to Grandpa. I started drinking at 13 years old in 1967. I was with a bunch of 17 and 18-year-olds smoking Vietnamese weed and drinking Valley High wine. Love Valley High wine. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. But what I didn't know was, as a potential alcoholic, as soon as I started to drink, as good as it made me feel, my spirit started to go to sleep. Real, it was real slow. Real slow. And uh, before you know it, I'm, I'm doing a lot of hallucinogens. I'm tripping my brains out like Joe on LSD. I'm going... Wow. Oh, this is great. And the guy that turned me on to it's dead now. He was like 22, 23 years old. He goes, you want to try this? I said, what? What is it? He said, it's a hallucinogen. It makes you see things that aren't there. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, do walls move? Do floors move around? No. He said, so when you see it, it's not really happening. Really? He said, yeah. And just remember, what you see, everybody else doesn't see it. They see something else. And if it gets too bad, don't worry about it. It'll wear off in about 12 hours. I said, I've got to try that. I, I'm going to. 
And I loved it, I loved it, and I loved it. And I couldn't figure out why I loved it. For years, I thought, well, God, I, I just, you know, oh, God, everything's so beautiful. The colors are wonderful. And look at all these hands. Christ, look at that. Woo! Yeah, just, oh, my, the floor has some beautiful patterns in it. And I was doing it a little bit too much. And I almost went to my mother at 14 years old and said, Mom, I'm tripping my brains out all the time, and I, I don't know what's wrong with me. And this is what stopped me. My grandmother, her mother's mother, lived in a state mental institution for 42 years. And we would go out, everybody would pile into the car, aunts, uncles, cousins, to go visit grandma at the state mental institution our weekend outing to the nut house. And we'd go there and they'd bring her out and I'd see these kids. And there every once in a while a kid would come up to me and goes, are you a patient? And I thought, well, no, why? Well, the kid was in there. And I saw my grandmother in there for 42 years and the thing that stopped me from telling my mother was, they're going to put me in there and you don't get out of there. I saw little kids. I saw my grandmother in all those years. When you go in, you don't come out. And it was in the 60s, and we were trying everything. We were, we were doing speed. We were doing all that stuff. And I couldn't figure out, well, why am I, you know, why am I doing this? This is crazy. I, I don't get it. You know, and I must have done LSD a few hundred times until all of a sudden one day I went, I'm really tired of this. I don't know why the hell I'm doing it. Make your cigarettes feel like big cotton balls in your mouth. You smell funny, trails. It's not funny anymore. It's not fun anymore. And I did the same thing with speed. I did the same thing with all the drugs. And I look back on it now and I can tell you why. Now, to the casual observer, they would have looked at me and said, look at that boy. He's got an addictive personality. He'd do anything. Give it to him. He'd do it. And that wasn't it at all. It just hit me about six months ago. The reason I did all those drugs like that is my spirit had started to go to sleep as a young boy. And I was trying to wake it up. There was something inside of me going, something wrong, something wrong. The world doesn't look good when I'm not drinking. I'll try that. And I didn't know it, but I was trying to wake my spirit up. You hear about it all the time. Taking a trip, not taking a trip, physical fitness, education, going to church, praying. They'll do anything to try to wake their spirit up in order to feel normal again. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I had no clue that that's why I did that. And uh, I ended up going into the Navy, running away from home, got in a lot of trouble, came back home, uh, couldn't keep jobs. You know, there's some people who are called functioning alcoholics. I functioned for a short time. And then I was the kind of guy that couldn't get there three days a week. I'd try to show up on payday. I'd wake up, the birds are singing, it's 10 in the morning. I'm like, oh, no, not again. Oh, my God, what the what? the hell's wrong with me? I, I just, you know, and I'm, I'm not one of these people who are so-called functioning alcoholics. I've heard it said that a functioning alcoholic is like a paraplegic lap dancer. <laughs> you might think you're bumping and grinding, but only in your mind, you know. <laughs> yeah, you think you're doing great, and everybody's going, look at that guy, hit that, hey. And you're thinking, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm doing good. <laughs> So to make a long story short, my drinking had progressed. My mother kicked me and my brother out because I'd become violent. I got a sleeping room on Scott Street. 
Uh, and that's where I found Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time on April the 10th, 1977. I was 22 years old, and I had a spiritual awakening at my mother's house, and that's what introduced me to AA. It's about that simple. And um, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I heard a guy named Don Muchmore. He's dead now. Don was sober 39 years last year, and he started drinking after 39 years. He had stopped going to AA, stopped relying on a power greater than himself. And people said, oh, he forgot he was powerless. No, he knew he was powerless. Oh, he forgot he was an alcoholic. No, it has nothing to do with what he remembered or what he forgot. He had no power to protect him against himself, and he just died a few weeks ago. But I remember that man. I remember my first meeting Alcoholics Anonymous. I had bib overalls on, no shirt, no underwear. <laughs> Head out to here, looked like Charlie Manson. Everybody else is 40, 50 years old. They're all, all well-dressed and nice, and nobody said anything about my flow-through look or anything like that. <laughs> oh, come on over here. It's good to see you. It's good to have you. And I heard Don talk about drinking and going to Eddyville, and uh, this guy got so mad. A guy hit him in the face with a tire iron, broke his nose. And the next, after he got out of the hospital, they went and found that guy. He got drunk and found that guy and tied him to the railroad track in Newport waiting for the train. And I thought, this AA is some wild stuff. Oh, my God, I've never done to Eddieville or tied anybody to the track. But I thought about it. <laughs> I thought about it. And uh, I met my sponsor my very first day at Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, just a wonderful guy. And uh, I didn't stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh, came around for 89 days, didn't take any of the steps. Uh, after 89 days, started smoking pot because uh, my spirit wasn't awake. I didn't know that. I was still trying to wake my spirit up. My spirit was asleep. And I eventually going back to drinking. And uh, drinking made me feel okay for a while, and then I quit working, and I went back to AA a couple weeks later. And I started this merry-go-round going in and out of AA, sober four months the next time. Went through a hospital, Batesville. Uh, gee, I uh, was sober five months one time. I went to a meeting every day, chaired the fifth month, and the last day of that fifth month that I chaired, I walked out of the meeting, I thought, I've got it. This is the longest I've been sober ever. And I thought, you know, a bottle of MD-2020 would be really good right now. And uh, I went and got it. Like I had never been to A in my life, and I'm going, I must be one of those constitutionally incapable of being honest people. Man, I'm a loser in AA, for Christ's sake. AA doesn't work for me either. And uh, I would get sober for a week or two. I, I, my thinking was, well, I'm sober a week now. I'll drink Friday and go back Monday, and I'd show up six weeks later and go, I was coming back Friday. I mean, just powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable, just eluded me. You know, I'm there. I'm there in AA with no cut, with no shirt, no underwear, and bib overalls on. I'm going to be, go to college to be an X-ray technician. <laughs> they just smiled at me. You just keep coming back, you know. And uh, I came back on October 5th, 1978, which is my sobriety date. I didn't know I was going to check in. I didn't know I had surrendered. I didn't know anything about that. And um, I'm back in AA, and I'm, it's another cold fall coming around. I'm going to. Ah. I'll hang out here till my brain clears out. I'm not like these people. God, I can't stand. I I know they're nice, but I can't take it. I, I'll, I'll be here. I'll I'll uh, 
I'll stay here for a while and then I'll get out of here. And uh, on the third day, my sponsor called my landlord. Uh, I lived in a furnished room. The only thing I owned was my clothes, a lighter, and my cigarettes. And the landlord yells down the hall, there's a guy from Alcoholics Anonymous on the phone. He wants to talk to you. Well, God, they know I'm an alcoholic, you know. Like they didn't know I was an alcoholic already, okay? So I got on the phone. I said, God, you tone that down. Don't do that anymore, man. Just say this is Mike. He said, look, I need somebody to talk for me at the jail tonight. You don't have to if you don't want to. I said, well, what am I going to tell him? I've only been sober three days. He said, tell him what it's like to be sober three days. Well, Okay. And I hung up, and I went, oh, dumb, dumb. Mm, mm. And I got on the bus. I had a buck 25 to my name, and I used 60 cents for the bus. And I'm the only guy on the bus. Now, it's, it's October. It's getting cold. The leaves are blowing around. And, and I'm all the way in the bench seat in the back, and the driver's up there, and he's looking at me in the mirror. Because I got this Charlie Manson. I'm three days sober going, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm doing it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to the diesel of that bus, and I can smell the fumes, and I'm thinking, you have lost your mind. You're going to meet a guy you don't like to tell some people in jail that you don't know what it's like to be sober three days? What? You have lost your better judgment. But when, you look, when I look back on it, all my actions were saying I'm willing to do whatever it takes to keep from drinking. Now, I didn't know that. I had no clue. Went in there, spoke about 10 minutes. Mike spoke the other part, and he'd come out, and he said, see, that helped you stay sober. I thought, you're dumber than I thought. <laughs> There's no beer in there. I couldn't drink in there if I wanted to. <laughs> he just smiled at me. And about 30 days sober, I thought, I'm going to prove to you people that A doesn't work. I'm so sure that this doesn't work. It hasn't worked for me before. I, I, I just know it won't work. But I'm so sure I'm going to do everything you say you do, and I'm going to read that book, and I'm going to try to do what it says to do. Now, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> you know, how well can you know what you're doing at 30 days sober? Really. And uh, I got to the point of making that third step. And my concept of God at that time was some imaginary pie-in-the-sky idea. It wasn't that I denied the existence of God. I just thought, well, if there is one, he's sleeping. Look at my life. I mean, not helping me. So my third step was, I'm supposed to ask you for help. Give me your best shot. That was my third step. Now, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I had no clue. You know, I'd like to read you the third step. I don't have it memorized. I'm not as spiritual as some people. Now, usually people like me get all goofy. Well, should I do it on my knees? Should I do it with somebody else? Do I say it like the book and the prayer? This guy said he did an official third step. What is an official third step? I don't know what that is. I must be more of a third step than this third step. It says, we were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. 
wow. When I read that, it's like, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> you, you want me to ask you to make me useful to you and other people, but what about me? <laughs> now, can you imagine me at 30 days sober actually sitting down with God? Follow me for a few minutes. And I'm sitting at a table. And God's sitting there. And I said, it's a little bright in here, isn't it? He says, yeah, I have that effect on people. I am God. I went, Jesus. What he said, that's all right. I hear that all the time. He said, so you want me to keep you sober? Huh? I said, well, yeah. I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I have nowhere to go. And I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I, I'll uh, just help me. He said, so you'll do what? I want you to do? Yeah. And I'm telling you, had I known how God was going to make me useful in the way He wanted to, I don't think I'd have stayed. <laughs> you know, sobriety has allowed me to be useful on my terms with a lot of people doing a lot of things. But that's kind of braggadocio. I, I asked God to use me the way He wanted to use me. You know, to live life on a spiritual basis or die an alcoholic death, they're not all easy, always, you know, always easier alternatives. And he says, well, you know, if you want me to help you, I want you to do a, things, a few things for me. Well, like what? He says, uh, you're going to be married in a couple years. Said, really? I live in a sleeping room. So I know, I know. And you're going to marry a wonderful woman, but there's going to be a time in her life where she's going to need your support. Now, Al-Anon, you think you can do that? I said, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to support anybody. He says, I know, but I'll help you do it. You're going to have two young kids a year apart on the same day. <laughs> so I like doing bank shots. <laughs> the youngest one's going to have his feet on upside down, but that's no problem. I just need you to take care of him until he grows up to be the man I want him to be. You think he can do that? I go, I don't know if I can do that or not. He said, I'll make sure you have everything you need. And the oldest boy, he's going to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous one day. But he's going to come home and he's going to bring a little girl with him and granddaughter. And they're going to need your help to recreate their lives. Think you can do that for me? I don't know. Uh, that alcoholic death's looking a little bit better right now. I don't know. This spiritual basis stuff. What's in it for me? He said, oh, you remember that brother that came to Alcoholics Anonymous 90 days after you? Oh, well, yeah. You know, the one that said he was a drug addict. Didn't think he was an alcoholic. He's going to go to the penitentiary for drinking whiskey. He's going to hurt a lot of people. And I need you to go support him in there. Can you do that? Well, I guess I can do it. Uh, how long do you want me to do it? He said 20 years. What? I'm only 23. That's almost my whole life. He says, I know. But it's always going to be just this month. Think you can do that? Well, I don't know if I can do that. He said, oh, yeah. You're going to have a brother-in-law through that marriage with your wife. And she's got a sister that's got epilepsy. Never has had a license. And she's married to a jerk. He's a racist and a bigot. I'm God and I don't like him, but I need you to help him. <laughs> well, how do you want me to help him? Well, I need you to get him a couple cars so he can take her to the doctor and take himself to dialysis. You think you can do that for me? I go, this alcoholic death is looking better, really. I, I don't know if I, if you would have told me how I was going to be made useful, I'd have said, no, thank you. I'm not interested. This doesn't seem like anything that I want to do. I wrote that inventory 
I went on with the rest of the steps, and I'm telling you, at 30 days sober, I didn't think any of this would work. Now, how well can a man understand what goes on spiritually at 30 days sober to understand what he's doing? Thank God A didn't ask me to understand anything. They just asked me to follow. That's all. Just follow. You know, before A really got started and the big book was written, they used six steps. It's interesting, these six steps from the Oxford group, William James and Dr. Silkworth. And they are roughly this, complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Three, a moral inventory. Four, confession. Five, restitution. And six, continue to work with other alcoholics. That was the path the original members took before the big book was written, before they had 12 steps. And Bill wrote, the group in Akron and the one in New York, they seem to be thriving well, and the ones who seem to stay sober seem to cling to the other members of the group and stay active in their groups. And that's what I started to experience. I started to experience this path that they thought they took. Now, it's interesting. Before they wrote the book, Bill broke this six steps down into 12, and he went back to the group and says, does this look like what we did? I said, well, kind of. You could tweak this here and tweak this there. But it wasn't exactly what they did, or we'd have six steps. But if you don't know that, and you just do what this book says and follows those 12 steps, something happens. And that something happening is a spiritual awakening. I was working in the projects down off of Lynn and Liberty in 1978. And I was two months sober. And I come out of this building at 2 in the morning, rough area. You know, rough area, Lynn and Liberty, for a guy like me. <laughs> and uh, it was snowing out. It was, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was December the 10th. It was two in the morning, and the snow was coming down just so light. There was not a, wind, a breeze, nothing. And I come out of that building, I went, oh, look how beautiful that is. Oh, my God. That is the most beautiful thing. I went, you're in a ghetto, man. You better get your act together. What and it hit me. Oh, my God, this is so beautiful. I wanted to knock on doors and say, you know how pretty it is outside? But you get a white guy knocking on a black door at 2 in the morning, you're going to get shot. <laughs> and I had the overwhelming sense that everything was going to be okay. And I realized there were some relationships that were broken that will probably never be fixed. And there's other ones that are going to take a long time to straighten out that I hadn't established myself professionally, uh, I haven't established my education level, nothing. But I realized I don't need to know the answer to any of those. I was okay standing in the ghetto at 2 in the morning. I went, wow, I need to get more of this. And what that feeling was are those promises that we hear read at the meetings all the time. I knew there's something had changed inside of me, and I woke up in the ghetto at 2 in the morning at 2 months over. It was a wonderful experience. God, it was fantastic. And right away, I said, I want more. I'm going to write 10 inventories. <laughs> like I'm going to strong-arm God or something, you know what I mean? And uh, I started 
walking on my path in Alcoholics Anonymous. And my sponsor would go to the jails and we'd go with them and I'd learn how to t talk to other alcoholics. And uh, I did end up getting married two years sober. I did end up having two sons. A lot, of more, a lot more things happened than that. We like to talk, them, talk about them like they're the great events. Really, really. I have woken up on some days, awoke on some days where I went, I cannot believe this is my life. I remember walking down the aisle with my wife at two years sober going, I cannot believe I'm doing this. This is really something. You're, you know, a few years later, my oldest boy was born, and then a year later after that, the other one was born. Those are great events to watch happen sober. I'd learn how to fly a plane. I woke up one day, and I was flying the plane. And I've got my first passenger as a newly licensed pilot, and it was my wife. And we're flying at night over Riverfront Stadium over a ball game going, look at that. Woo! That was a great event, wasn't it? I woke up another day, and I'm standing, and I'm looking over, and I'm looking at the crater, a huge volcanic crater on my right, and to my left is a 100-foot thick ice glacier. And I'm standing below a sign that says, the highest point in Africa, Aruhu Peak, the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, Mount Kilimanjaro, 19,340 feet. And you go, that is a great event. I woke up another day, and I'm paddling down the Peruvian Amazon, I'm going, I can't believe this is my life. I'm smelling the river, and I can hear things, and I'm with people I've never met before, and I go, that's a great event. Wow, those are great events. But I don't think those are the events that they're talking about. I think the great events aren't on the outside. They're on the inside. They're nowhere out there. They're in here, and Bill talks about it. He talks about the great reality the fourth dimension of existence, the world of the spirit, the sunlight of the spirit, the realm of the spirit. I thought, oh, those are just lofty terms. But you know what? I did help raise that handicapped son. I might not have done too good of a job from time to time. But he's an aerospace engineer and he designs jet for Gulfstream Jet down in Savannah, Georgia. And I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know that was in me. Had I not agreed to do that, I would not have been introduced to who I am. That's who I am as a man. I didn't know that. That son and granddaughter that came home, I didn't, I didn't let them come home because that was Mike and Bridget. If you were my granddaughter and you were my son, and in that same situation, I would have done that for you because that's who I am as a man. And I didn't know that. That brother-in-law that was racist, bigoted, you know, he died three years ago. If he came back, I still wouldn't like him. That's the nice thing about being sober. You can just, you know, not like somebody without resentment. I don't like him. I had an 87 Grand Marquis, and I was going to trade it in. And my wife said, you know, Doug and Kathy's car is about dead. You're not going to get much for that car. Why don't you give it to him? <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't find an answer that would disagree with that. I said, okay, and I went over and signed that car over to him. Seven years later, I had a, a villager van, and I was going to trade it in. I thought, well, 
I know where this goes. It goes to Doug. And I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would be able to overlook my personal grievances with somebody I don't like to do what needs to be done. I didn't know, I didn't know that about me. I, for heaven's sakes, had I not agreed to let God use me the way he wanted to use me, I would never have been introduced to who Joe is. I would have been looking at Mount Kilimanjaro in a plane. I'd be looking out there. And it's in here. It's inside. That brother, I went to visit him for 20 years. 20 years. And there were times I go, I don't want to go up there. God, I don't want to go back through that damn metal detector and all the goofy guards and the nasty smells. I'll go. I'll go. It's just this month. I'll go. I didn't do it because... That was my brother. If you were my brother and you were doing 20 years, I'd have come to visit you because that's who I am as a man, and I didn't know that about myself. God introduced me to me, and I asked myself, what's in it for me? The more I become useful the way he wants me to for his benefit and other people's benefit, the more I'm introduced to Joe. And that's the great event. That's the great event. The steps don't lead out there. They lead in here. And you go, I'll be damned. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about myself. That's really something. That's okay. And that's why I said tonight I'm happy, whole, and useful. Um, the 11th step, 7th and 11th step kind of say what the third step does. It just kind of repeats itself a little bit, a little bit different angle. You know, you know, 11th step implies that I've made contact with God. But a lot of times people like me get hung up with the mechanics of the step, you know, like the third step. Should you get on your knees or not? Do you pause and then, you know. And I'm here to tell you that as a result of having the spiritual awakening, these things automatically happen. You don't have to concern yourself with the mechanics. <laughs> I was in a, I was in a uh, gas station a year ago. I, t I told this down at uh, the Big A, and, and I'm, I saw this woman. She looked about 50, but she was weather-worn, just really wrinkled, and she had two sons that were like 18 and 19. <coughs> and I could tell they were brothers, and I'm standing in line in this little gas station, and what, the one brother's in front of me and the other brother's over here, and the brother that's about 18 turned around and said, You better back up. You're in my space. And I kind of paused for a second, and I looked at him, and I said, well, I don't think that's the case, son. I'm just standing here waiting to pay for my gas. He said, oh, he turned around. <laughs> <laughs> and then the mother went. And I go, oh, God, that's why she's got all those wrinkles. She's been chasing that little bastard at McDonald's at the zoo. You're in my space. Oh, God, i got to go get him. She's been doing that for years. And I got in my car, and I'm ready to leave, and the brother said, thanks. I go, look, I was just getting gas. It's no big deal. And I drove away, and I thought, I didn't let some fool determine my reality. I determined it by doing it my way. It's the opposite of the world, and the people in it are often quite wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I can do that eight out of ten times. There's two times where I go, how much space you need, Kent, you know, but on that day, on that day. And I drove up, I drove up the street and I'm thinking to myself, 
Oh, 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 oh. That's why we pause. Oh, the power, the power is in the pause. God is in the pause. We don't pause because that's what we should do. We pause because God is in the pause. And I didn't know that. I thought, oh my God, just it just keeps coming clearer and clearer to me. So I've talked about true usefulness. I've talked about the spiritual awakening. And uh, you know what? I'm going to be done in 45 minutes. Wow. That's pretty cool. Um, I, I, want to I want to tell you this. This is really cool. I want to leave you with something. I want to leave you with what I see. You know, when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous in 78, if I was attending a meeting with this many people, I would have been anxiety-ridden. Oh, these people are nice. But, oh, God, i got to get out of here. They smell good. They're dressed well. I know they say they're alcoholics, but I don't believe most of them. I, I, I can't wait for them to pray so I can go outside and have a cigarette and calm down. Oh, these people are nice, but for Christ's sake, I can't, I can't do that. And 38 years later, I want to tell you what I see. I'm looking through the eyes of a man whose spirit is wide awake. You look so different to me. This past 45 minutes, I feel like I've been talking with friends over a cup of coffee in my living room. That's a great event for a guy like me. That for some reason, the path to God for me has always gone through you, another alcoholic. And I believe right this second what I'm looking at is the face of God. It's in your face. It's me being with you. That it's not somewhere in Tempe, Arizona or Boise, Idaho. It's right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most wonderful thing I've ever seen in my life. And uh, I am no longer separate from you. I am no longer not like you. Ladies and gentlemen, I am you. Good night.